This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Ah, that's how you pronounce it. Everyone in Doctor Who podcast land, welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Arguably, in fact, probably quite uncategorically, the finest Doctor Who podcast on the planet, if not the universe. It's my great pleasure to be here today in the camper van alongside my good friend James to review The Rings of Akatan. Aha, that's how you pronounce it then. <laughs> mm. I, was chuck- I was thinking Chuck a Khan, Akaten, Ak. Harton, I, I have no idea. I'm not very good at pronouncing things, as, as listeners will know. I, I've, I've called it Varos instead of Varos for the last 20 years. So, oh, um, terrible, terrible. Yeah. Pronunciation and stuff is kind of lost on me. But Trevor, it's wonderful to have you back after you going walkabout for our review of The Bells of St. John. It is wonderful to be back. I was actually in a place so remote in central Queensland, there was no internet. I know... I'm hearing the collective gasps of 10,000 listeners saying there are places on earth that don't have the internet. I was in such a place. But, you know, the first thing I did on the five-hour drive back home when we got back into internet range? Uh, Major dinner. Checked Twitter. I downloaded episode 197 of the Doctor podcast and listened to it. On the journey home, your review of Bells of St. John. Mm, yes. Interesting, because all three of us had only seen it once, and therefore most of the feedback we've received so far is, oh, we, we liked your review, but you missed A, B, C, D, E, F. And, of course, they're absolutely right. The Bells of St. John was one of those episodes that had so many details in it that unless you sat there with your nose an inch from the screen and a notepad in one hand, you, you simply are not going to get all of the nuances and all of the references. But what did you make of it, Trev? This is your opportunity to emulate Chip. You can be a two-minute Time Lord. Uh, give us a two-minute review of The Bells of St. John. Go. I'll certainly try. Um, it, it was an interesting experience because, as I mentioned, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, ABC TV over here is basically showing the episode 12 hours after the UK screening, which which is fantastic. I was so worried when they announced that we were going to be seeing Bells of St John on Easter Sunday, basically. I was going to miss out because I was up in the middle of nowhere. But they had TV reception. And I tell you, watching Doctor Who in a beautiful open-air camp kitchen on an LCD TV and watching the crowds starting to filter in over the space of the 50-minute episode, just enthralled by actually having Doctor Who on the screen. It was an incredible experience, and I really think that helped for me to enjoy Bells of St John a lot more uh, because I was sitting there in my beautiful camp chair with a nice glass of wine by my side, as, as one does. Word seemed to spread round the campsite. Doctor Who's on. Doctor Who's on. Quick, run down to the camp kitchen and watch it. And 
there was only myself and my two sons there at the beginning, but by the end we had a crowd of 30 people, all <laughs> enthralled by Bells of St John. The, the, the Chinese whispers spread throughout the campsite that Doctor Who was on the television. It, it was a fantastic experience, it really was. But as for the episode itself, um, listening to a review on the way back from my holiday on Tuesday, I pretty much agree with everything you said. Um, wow. There were some fantastic moments in this. It did have a very skyfall feel to it. Um, you know, the way they showed London uh, was absolutely beautiful. I've never been there, uh, but it really seemed to show a lot of London in, in a very unique way, very similar to a, a, what a lot of other BBC contemporary shows do, that they show really beautifully lit and beautifully fantastically photographed vistas of the you know london landscape that that was really good i love the way they tried to tie in certainly at the beginning that this was a global phenomenon with the wi-fi that they were showing different uh people around the world being affected by this um wi-fi virus basically matt smith as i think you said james is the doctor he is so effortlessly the doctor it's not funny i think he could play the doctor in his sleep by now he, he is that good um, he was really good in Bells of St John. The the actual story itself I, I wasn't that thrilled with, and I think you touched on a little bit, James, saying that it almost seemed incidental to the entire story, and, and I would tend to agree. Mm. What we were there to see was we were there to see the return of the Doctor, um, you know, to, to, to soak in the London landscape and to explore the relationship between the Doctor and Clara, which went down some very, very interesting avenues. Well, thanks, Trev. Yeah, um, it, it's always great to hear what you think about an episode of Doctor Who. And it, it's interesting to hear that we're more or less on the same page here. I don't think I've seen any really bad reviews or anyone slating the story hugely. And there's there's usually a couple of threads on the forums that, uh, that lay, lay into the story or performances or something. And I think most people have accepted it as a fairly strong season opener but uh, we're, we're now going to move on we're going to move on to episode two I've, I've given up trying to number these things anymore innovatively <laughs> it's either episode two or episode five or episode six so whatever it's called the rings of akata that explosion scattered those elements across the desolations of deep space after so so many millions of years, these elements came together to form new stars and new planets, and on and on it went. The elements came together and burst apart, forming shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, until, eventually, they came together to make you. Okay. That was different. I think that's probably the best way to start. It probably warrants the definition of unique. I don't think there's another episode of Doctor Who quite like this. I think I'm going to start by talking about the production first. And I think it's extremely clear that there's been a lot of money thrown at this episode. And it really benefits hugely. This looks fantastic. Uh, the colours, the detail, the, the, the great space landscapes that you see uh that the rings of Akatan themselves look stunning as far as i'm concerned i love the detail on the costumes uh the the alien life form and i think um the pre-publicity said that they've never tried to have so many different alien races all in one episode before and and i think that's very clear to see the first 15 minutes of this episode absolutely blew me away and i i just felt 
like I was watching something at the cinema because there really was no difference between how this looked and something like Prometheus, you know. I mean, I think it all changed a little bit the further into the story we got. I'd certainly say this is the most impressive episode of Doctor Who from a visual point of view since the show came back in 2005. And uh, for for the large part, I I love that about the story. But the, the actual story itself, I came away and my reaction was, I think I liked it. Which is a bit strange because I couldn't I couldn't be more definitive than that. Uh, no, I, I am going to have to go and watch it again. Um, at the time of recording, I've only seen it on the the, the, the once, but uh, I I think I liked it. It's it's a difficult story for me to objectively assess. I wasn't bored at any point. As I said, the visual side of it had a huge impact on me. Matt Smith once again was fantastic, and he his performance carries me through pretty much any story these days and makes me want to get to the end and I I just I I just liked it I think I just liked it um but I I think it's going to take a little bit longer for me to form a more robust calm view if that makes sense but uh but Trevor what was uh what was was your initial reaction to to this episode I'm along very similar lines to you James whereas you're saying that um you think you liked it I was more like I think I'm supposed to like it. I I think everything in this episode is geared towards me thinking that this is supposed to be the most majestic, um, heart-thumping, absorbing, emotional episode of Doctor Who this year. But if, if I was to look at it from my own very subjective point of view, this episode didn't do a lot for me. I was a little bit the opposite with you with the market scenes, James. Um, I got a very Beast Below vibe. For this episode you know the, the 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 melting pot of races that they were trying to portray was very similar to beast below and you know the market square and stuff like that i never really felt like it could be something to rival a uh, i suppose a big screen film like prometheus or mm. star wars or anything like that it did seem like that they were working on a very small set they crammed a lot of things in a lot of different weird looking aliens I don't know. I, I think it's photographed beautifully and it looks wonderful. Yeah. But I think un- underneath that belies the fact that maybe they didn't have a lot of money to throw at this sort of thing because I think that's the same sort of thing they had when they did Beast Below, that um, they wanted to portray this amazing collection of races. But, yeah, I, I don't know. They, they spent a lot of money on different masks and different alien uh, costumes, but not a lot on the actual set dressing, I yeah, I, I know what you mean about the similarity to The Beast Below in terms of an enclosed environment. And I think it's also quite similar, although probably not on purpose, to the market scenes we saw in Turn Left. You know, lots of alien races. Uh, yeah, the, the, okay. the Doctor yeah, yeah. and his companion just roaming through um, an alien marketplace, uh, you know, just just marvelling at the wonders the universe has to has to offer. But I, I, I got the feel that this was done better. It was almost as though they had had learned from that experience. Uh, again, obviously, all of this is subjective. Um, but, but for me, I don't think it did belie uh, a small budget. I, I think it worked very well. The, the kind of things that I think compromised it a little bit and made it quite clear that this was a television production as opposed to a cinematic one or one that you might expect to see on the silver screen uh, are, are things like the alien that communicates through barking 
And and I think what that is trying to do, and again, this, the same can be said of the speeder bikes, which of course is all uh, all linked in to the same scene. Really, this is a very adult episode of Doctor Who. It, it's not what you could say this would appeal to children, apart from the visual spectacle. Uh, I, I think it all had a very serious emotional uh, approach. Um, with all this singing, which again I quite liked, it was very ethereal. But I think the pace was actually quite slow. And because of that, it's almost as if someone has said, you know, we need to throw something a little bit silly in here to keep people interested, perhaps keep a younger audience watching. I felt certainly the the speeder bikes and the the, the traversing of space on, on what essentially was a flying motorbike, again, for the second episode running, didn't, mm. didn't quite match the tone of the story that felt a little bit jarring. It's not to say that it was bad or it was inappropriate. It just felt slightly out of place in this episode. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. I, I wasn't a big fan of that. And, and I did get a very annoying Bells of St. John flashback with the uh, Doctor and Clara racing across the uh, cosmos to save the Queen. Hmm. Um, what, what I did like, though, was the earlier scenes before we got to all that singing the scenes between the Queen and Clara, especially when they sat behind the TARDIS and had their little conversation, I thought that was absolutely magical. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Jen Louise is effortless in that particular instance. What I don't think she works as well at is her interaction with Matt Smith. I still don't think we're back at the stage of the, I, I don't know, the, the energetic interactions we got during the Christmas special. There, there's still, for some reason, that, I don't know barrier between them that really mm. stops them from clicking and for for me when i was watching clara and the queen behind the tardis i was going well what's the doctor doing all this time where is he <laughs> why have we got this long protracted scene with no doctor in it um that that's that's what struck me he'd gone off to find a fluorescent blue cupcake hadn't he and uh, <laughs> well. i, I which is quite an interesting uh, reason to have the Doctor off the screen for a little while. But I, I actually agree with you about Clara, I have to say. Um, and, and yes, I think she's deliberately different to the version of Clara we saw in The Snowman and indeed in Asylum of the Daleks because this is essentially a different person. There was a lot of talk at the beginning of the episode, or was it, oh, it was towards the end of the episode, where the Doctor says, you remind me of someone. And of course, that's the other iterations of Clara. And the script almost tries too hard, I think, um, for Clara to say, well, actually, this is me and I shouldn't be compared to anybody else. So they're creating a little bit of um, friction there because the Doctor clearly is travelling with Clara because he wants to solve the problem. He wants to know why he's met her twice already. And clearly, the current version of Clara is slightly different and she is less manic, uh, despite the fact that the... The, the dialogue between her and the Doctor is extremely fast and is very rapid, and I'm still having difficulties understanding the dialogue on mm. first first Same listen here. and Same on, on first watch. Now, this has been the case with Doctor Who for a good many years now, and I'm not quite sure why I don't try and address it. The only way that I can hear everything is if I watch it on an iPad or something later with earphones. The dialogue is definitely fast-paced. There's no doubt about it. I mean... I, I just think we have to put it down to us being too old, James. I mean, we, we are a different generation of Doctor Who fan compared to the people who are watching it now. And and I've long since accepted that I can't pick up everything on first view. And if the story isn't engaging enough or interesting enough, 
I will not return to it to try and pick up those nuances. And I'm sure there's 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 plenty in this episode that I'm going to miss because mm. I, I don't really have any great urge to return to it. I, I'm not sure whether it is exclusively you and I just becoming geriatric. Um, I, mean, I, I do understand that that is a possibility and, and, and things um, things fail like hearing as, as, as you get older. But, but certainly, do, do you not think Doctor Who has become far more quippy? You know, ever since its return, most of the dialogue ends in a one-line witticism of some kind. Particularly the the stories that Stephen Moffat writes. You know, there, there is a story to be told, but the story never gets in the way of a good gag, and that can take some time to set up. Sometimes, I mean, the Bells of St John, the title of it is is a fantastic example of it. The whole reason, the beginning of that story, and I realise we're going back an episode now, but. Uh, it, the whole reason it started in 1207 was so that they can have this joke about the bells of St. John's Ambulance, you know, and and mm, have mm. that time differential and the mobile telephone gag at the end. Uh, it was completely incidental to the actual story. And I, I do wonder sometimes whether they go too far uh, in that direction. But um, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the rings of... Ac- <laughs> I keep on wanting to say the rings of Azkaban, uh, which came, you know, <laughs> a little Harry Potter, which is ironic given this had um, a kind of Star Wars stroke Indiana Jones feel to it, particularly when a doctor grabbed his sonic screwdriver from under the uh, descending yes, door. Yes, exactly. And did you notice how the reaction when he stood up was absolutely identical to Harrison Ford's uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. he just recovers his poise uh, in a particular way. I liked that, but it it felt like it was too many different homages. Uh, it didn't quite keep its identity as Doctor Who, leading to my opening statement, really, uh, that this is a very unique episode of Doctor Who. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't really find it unique. I mean, I, I wasn't that thrilled with the resolution. I mean, I know we've talked on the podcast before about how we haven't really been fans of certain episodes where love conquers all or, you know, great emotion conquers the, you know, the bad villain. You know, we've seen that before in Doctor Who. And this episode, we had it again. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I wasn't that thrilled with... I mean, I, mean I, I don't really even understand how the villain was defeated in the end or, or what the initial impetus was for defeating them. Well, I, I think what it was... And I'm sorry for jumping in, but I, I think it was established earlier on that the currency of the world that they were on was emotional items, things that meant a lot to somebody. And the leaf yeah. at the end had so much feeling for Clara, although why it would be much more feeling than anybody else's experience who has lost a parent or something, um, I'm not sure. But perhaps it was her belief in it. But you you are right. Fundamentally, this story was all about the power of emotion and uh, the the power of feeling and the strength of feeling. And we have seen that before. I think it was presented in a fairly different way to The Lodger and Victory of the Daleks and so on. And you could argue that it was done more convincingly. Um, but it felt more in line with a real hardcore sci-fi story to me. Something that, um, you, you know, like Michael Moorcock's um, Coming of the Terrorfiles, that everyone was saying that was basically a sci-fi fantasy book. And this almost felt like it was a movie in that direction. 
I'll, I'll just jump in there, James, and say I understood what the leaf meant to Clara, <laughs> that it wasn't the emotions built into it. It was the emotions of memories that will never happen because Clara's mum died in 2005. So it, 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 it wasn't the doctor's experiences from earlier on, his 1,000 years of memories and escapades. It was the fact that the leaf held... I suppose, latent memories of things that will never happen and they were a lot more potent as a result. Well, that that doesn't uh, ring true with me. I mean, I, I think you're right and I think that was certainly the the, uh, the plot, but I, I don't understand that because what they're talking about basically is stuff that didn't happen and everybody's got, you know, potential emotional investment in stuff that didn't happen because someone died and therefore they didn't get to live their life. So why would Clara's you know loss of her mother why would that generate any more power to defeat what was essentially a large pumpkin <laughs> well i i think we just have to accept the story's conceit that memories of things that were cruelly taken away from someone and never happened are far more potent than you know the actual memories themselves that uh clara's feelings for the loss of her mother taken away at presumably a relatively early age, yeah. um, you, know, you know, were far more immediate than any memory she could have had if her mother had lived. Oh, p- perhaps. And I, and I think that's where the story was going, in all honesty. I'm just not sure I bought into that that much. But, but talking about the... Um, well, I've written on my notes emo stuff. Um, you, you, uh, you, you referred to it earlier on. Certainly the opening few sequences where we saw Clara's parents meet and so on I like it when Doctor Who goes down that direction I have to say and it usually works for me and it did this time um it it kind of feels like the Doctor is intruding on Clara's past once again he's going back to try and investigate why Clara is seemingly fractured through time by experiencing and, and eavesdropping on emotional points in her life and that to me again kind of mirrors what happened with Amy Pond the doctor has always been there uh, in in her life and if he continually keeps going back during the times when Clara's not with him then surely she's going to be having lots of new memories as as her story progresses as as was shown at the end of this episode she turns around and says you were there, weren't you? Why were you yeah, there? You were spying yeah. on me. I'm also wondering whether the prequel to Bells of St. John that was released online actually isn't a prequel. It takes place after Bells of St. John because <laughs> he spends go. a lot of time at the beginning of uh, Rings checking out, basically, Clara's timeline. I'm yeah. wondering whether that little short episode that we saw online actually takes place then rather than before Bells of St. John. Well, you could well be right, and perhaps it would make a lot more sense if if that were to be placed in, in you know before the Bells of St John. But if you remember, we had conversations six, seven months or so ago now. Well, it wasn't that long ago, but when season seven A aired, about whether or not the episodes were being transmitted in order. Um, again, same thing could be happening here, perhaps uh, at least with the prequels. Um, makes a lot of sense for these things not to be happening in order. Well, it could be that way because we've every episode we've got the Doctor and Clara parting ways at the end of the episode because so they could be in any order. Well, and and I think that's the reason why Stephen Moffat does it because he can place things at any point in Clara's timeline, and uh, he's you know he, he loves doing this. He's done it with River Song, uh, he did it with Amy to a degree, although far more subtly last uh, last year. And, and perhaps he's doing it again with Clara. I mean, the thing is, for me, is extremely hard to follow. Um, I, I still enjoy the episodes. I still enjoy Doctor Who. 
but trying to see where it's going, trying to piece it all together at the end is going to be quite hard. And, you know, just through past experience, we still don't know how the TARDIS explodes at the end of season five. I'm determined <laughs> oh, to get a reference that to that. Don't in. bring that up again. <laughs> I want to speak about that every single episode we talk about TARDIS. <laughs> all the way up to 543. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> One thing that I, I was a bit disappointed in this episode about was the smug doctor towards the end of the episode. It's probably only something that I'm going to pick up and I'm going to mention, but I'm going to say it anyway. When the Queen was doing her singing towards the end of the episode, trying to uh, appease or quieten the, the god, the doctor is out on the asteroid basically trying to do the same thing. When he hears the choir going on, he goes, oh, yeah, that, that was all my idea, you know, you know, <laughs> Go, go, go back to where you came from. You know, this is all my master plan, blah, 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 blah. I I didn't like that aspect of the Doctor. He was trying to pass off something that he had nothing to do with as his idea, basically, saying, listen to the choir. You know, this this is going to defeat you type of thing. That that really annoyed me. You think that's what he was doing? You you don't think he was just proud of Clara? No, because he didn't know what was going on. He heard the choir. He was on a different asteroid to where Clara and the choir and and the Queen were. He was trying to pass off their efforts, or more specifically, Clara's efforts, as his own. That that really annoyed me. Uh, It was only later when he started doing the whole take my memories, take my thousand years of experience and feed on that and, you know, gorge on it, that we started to see a doctor that was actually trying to solve the problem rather than passing off other people's efforts as his own. I, I, I didn't take it as that, I have to say. I, I just thought he was scared, he was frightened, and, and certainly there was a conversation between the, the, the young girl and Clara about the Doctor being frightened, and therefore he just attacked that whole confrontation with a bit of bravado, false bravado. And that that's kind of how I... I read it, but I, I do know what you mean. Occasionally, the Eleventh Doctor can come across as smug, um, particularly when he's solved problems that he actually created in the first place. <laughs> and, uh, that that just seems a little bit undoctorish to me. But uh, I didn't I didn't get that much in this episode. I have to say, I must admit, I did like his speech at the end when he was trying to force his memories and experience onto the alien, mm. um, especially when he made reference to. Um, I, I've been to different universes where the laws of physics are uh, de- determined by a madman. I'm sure yes. that was a Three Doctors reference. That had to be. That that was absolutely glorious. That's exactly what I picked up as well. I was thinking there's got to be Omega. And actually, you've reminded me of something else. Um, Matt Smith did Angry in this episode again. And he's only done that a couple of times. And the, the, the very first occasion was in The Beast Below. So it's strange that you, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, um, where he said, <laughs> okay. no one human has got anything to say to me today. Um, but we also had the Stonehenge rant, where he shouted at all of those um, various different alien spaceships fairly unconvincingly. People refer to it as mm. his Wembley Arena moment, <laughs> you know, where he could just address uh, mm. hordes and hordes of aliens watching. And, and on this occasion, he, he, he did it, I think, a hundred times better and far more convincingly. And I, I like it when the 11th Doctor is extremely angry or starts shouting. It, it, it just seems to be right for this incarnation of the Doctor. Now, one of the strengths, again, I feel with this episode was the 
almost unexplained presence, I suppose, of this vampire in a large perspex box. Which, again, we were talking about Skyfall last week. Then, you know, the villain in Skyfall was enclosed in a large perspex box as well. Um, and, and, and I just felt that was done really well. Uh, particularly when the vampire was uh, awoken and he was bashing, bashing at the, the sides of the glass. And Clara and the Doctor were just almost ignoring him. You know, it, it was never really explained as to how this vampire got in the box how he was captured what he was doing there and even when he was ranting the doctor and clara and the little girl almost they just carried on their conversation regardless and it just worked it worked brilliantly for me it it was kind of strange with that vampire alien thing because i I think as the doctor explained later it wasn't the real threat it was only what did he say the alarm clock for the you know the main alien and it it was strange we spent so much time in that room with this alien just dying to get out and basically kill them all basically uh but then it was sort of brushed aside at the end oh no that that really isn't the big bad alien Mm. this is the big bad alien and so we got another 10 minutes of them trying to defeat that alien yeah um it, it it probably sums up for me a little bit about my feelings this episode that we went from one scene to another, to another, to another, and and I really didn't feel any cohesive flow. I, I, I wasn't a fan of the singing. I definitely wasn't a fan of the big all-in singing bit at the end where they tried to defeat the alien. <laughs> I thought that was just a, just a, just a little bit embarrassing for for my tastes. Yeah, I, I I suppose it just comes back to my core feeling about this episode. I never really got a handle on it. I never really got in and enjoyed it mm. like I did Bells of St John. No, I, I, I know what you mean. It was a strange type of thing because I, I think I was meant to like it. I really was. Everything in the episode was an emotional build-up to the climax with the Doctor offering his memories to the alien. I didn't feel invested in that journey. Sure. I mean, and perhaps the emotional side of it was a little bit too overt for you. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I felt like that a little as well. I felt as though it was trying quite hard to put at the heartstrings and yet it wasn't quite able to do it as effectively. And an example, you mentioned the singing. Uh, I didn't have a major problem with it, but I do think the singing within Gridlock, for example, worked far, far better, and that was a hymn at the end. And again, it was designed for the same thing. It was to get the audience, you know, to feel kind of sad and appreciate life and so on. And, um, you know, this time around, the power of singing, the power of unity, and uh, was going to help defeat... The big baddie <laughs> at the mm. end, and and yet it didn't quite work. And yet this was done, I think, probably with more money. Um, and yet that's certainly one episode by Russell T. Davis that I think probably pulled off a futuristic sci-fi story slightly better than a story produced under Moffat's guidance. One mm. one thing I did want to mention again, we were talking about that room with the time vampire, and I, I don't know how long the Doctor was trying to hold up what he claimed to be an extremely heavy door, but once once he let it drop, and then it got to the point in the scene where they needed to leave that room, wasn't it convenient that the little child seemed to remember a secret song that turned out to be a key <laughs> almost in the same way that the fifth doctor found um, Bruce's secret hideout <laughs> you know, oh let's just play a musical key and then we leave so there was all this dramatic tension and dialogue about uh, a door that had 
50 squillion locks and they were able to exit <laughs> it in, in five seconds flat. What I loved about that scene was, was, was the uh, part where they were being, you know, basically force pushed against the back wall. The doctor was flipped over backwards and yeah. Clara was pushed against the back wall. I'm sure when Clara was pushed against the wall, the set wobbled. <laughs> I, I really have to go watch it again, but I, I, I did a double take and either they were trying to convey that she was pushed so far back that she bended the wall or it was just one of those, as, as my good friend Tony says, production artefacts. That <laughs> when she was pushed against the wall, it wobbled. It actually bent. I didn't notice, but I will check. Oh, I, that, that's <laughs> the only reason it, I'm going to watch this episode again to see whether the wall bends or not. Fantastic, fantastic. And I think probably on that absolute most salient point... Um... Bombshell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The sets wobble in New Doctor Who. Bombshell, you heard it here first. Now, last episode, we talked a little about the 50th anniversary, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing we'll probably be doing this quite a lot over the coming months as more and more news leaks out. But, of course, due to uh, a, a slight problem with Doctor Who magazine's distribution centre, the BBC were forced into a rushed announcement um, last weekend, as we record this, about David Tennant and Billy Piper's appearance in the 50th anniversary special. Trevor, we didn't get your reaction to that. So uh, what, what do you think about that casting announcement? On the face of it, it's awesome. It's, it's incredibly obvious, but it's awesome. I mean, I don't think there was any doubt that David Tennant wouldn't be somewhere in the 50th anniversary. What's going to excite me more is when we hear a classic series, Doctor, announced as appearing in the 50th anniversary. Um, I, I think you could have taken it as given from this time last year that David Tennant would be somewhere in the 50th anniversary, and it's great that it looks like they're going to be having a, a substantial amount of the story. What worries me is that, that, you know, there are certainly many aspects of the hyperactive tenant doctor that are very similar to the Matt Smith doctor, mm. and I just hope we don't end up with two, basically, you know, two facets of the same person up there on screen. It would be nice to have a different doctor, even the Eccleston doctor, to, you know, to provide some contrast, like we've always seen when we have... Um, these special multi-doctor anniversary stories that we see that every doctor is distinctly different. Mm, no, I, I agree completely. And uh, I, I think there have been some stories where you could have interchanged Matt Smith for David Tennant. Mm, and I would mm. say, actually, uh, The Rings of Akatan is probably the first story that I couldn't picture the Tenth Doctor or David Tennant featuring in. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem like a Tenth Doctor story in any way, shape or form. It would be told differently. The tone would be different. It just 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 wouldn't have worked for him. So I'm hoping the script, and I'm certain the script will draw on the differences between those two doctors quite quite clearly. And what I think we're going to be getting, and you you, you talked about um, a classic doctor. I mean, Sylvester McCoy just this last week has ruled himself out of it. He said, "No, I haven't been approached." And yes, of course he could be lying, but I I don't think he will have been because um, <laughs> he he started talking about the the lights at the end, the big finish production in, in, instead. But I think we may very well get David Bradley guest starring as the first Doctor um, because they've got to go back to the beginning of the franchise. They've got to celebrate 1960s Doctor Who in some way. There's no way they're going to be able to just put something on screen that doesn't even acknowledge the show's history because it's hardly an no. anniversary celebration then. And they could keep that quiet. 
<laughs> because there's no reason no. as to why they couldn't have recorded scenes with him when they were on Adventure in Time and Space. Exactly, which is why I'm sure there's going to be some announcement at some point about a classic series Doctor, whether it's a replacement for a uh, long-past Doctor like Hartnell or Troughton, or whether we're actually going to get Davison or Colin Baker or, or even Tom Baker featuring somewhere in the anniversary. It, it won't be a 50th anniversary without at least mm. one classic doctor and 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 i'll make that call now mm. um one, one thing you mentioned last week was um i don't know i suppose your your disappointment about rose being well, it's in not the disappointments it's not disappointment it, it's kind of they're really gonna have to push the boat out to make this work no i so. mean honestly guys i mean laura michelle james even <laughs> you do realize doctor who is a time travel story don't you is it <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to shock you with that, but it is a time travel story. They can get the Tenet Doctor and Rose from season two of Doctor Who. We don't even have to go anywhere near that awful human David Tenet Doctor. We don't have to even worry about that and still have a Tenth Doctor Rose pairing. No, no, I, I completely agree. I think it is going to be difficult if they do that because let's say it was between episodes three and four of season two. It could be between any episodes. When you go back and watch season two, you have to be able to fit the 50th anniversary special oh, in James. without We've it impacting that We've been doing that for story. years. We've been reading Missing Adventures. We've even been listening to Big Finishers and wondering how the heck did they fit this Big Finish story between this televised story and that televised story. We've been doing it for the past, well, since 1993 pretty much, fitting I, 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 in I, I new agree. adventures with old adventures. I, I, I know. I think it's easier to do it when it's in, in audio because they appeal to real diehard Doctor Who fans who, who who can do that. But when you're trying to retcon stories that are made in the new era and just a few years old, that no. is going to be harder. It's, a, no. it's not Easy impossible. Peasy. Don't get me wrong. Not impossible. But I, I think it could be harder. I suspect somehow that they are going to take these two characters out from separate timelines because that gives them far more freedom to do it and actually have a reconciliation almost um, between the Tenth Doctor let's, and Rose. Let's not complicate things, James. Let's just look back all the way back to 1983, the 20th anniversary, <laughs> and realise that Terence Dix did it effortlessly back then. He had Sarah Jane, he had Zoe... He had Mike Yates. He had the third Doctor with Sarah Jane, for goodness sake. And it all worked beautifully. So <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think you're worrying way too much. Okay. Well, one thing we know we can uh, expect, and, and again, this was announced just this last week, Zygons are not only returning, they're returning in the 50th anniversary special. And they, I've only seen one photograph uh, at this moment in time, but boy, does it look good. And once again, it's incredibly faithful. They, they do look incredibly faithful, don't they? Very much like the Ice Warriors. The only mm. difference I could really notice with the Zygons or, or the new Zygons was the face seems to be more prominent in this new Zygon. Uh, the original Terror of the Zygon story, they, they did have a face, but it was more, I, I suppose, meshed into the costume, whereas yeah. the new series ones that we're, we're seeing in this one solitary photograph, the, the face seems to be much more prominent. But they, they, they do look incredible, and I'm looking forward to seeing... 
what they do with the Zygon. I, I, I'm generally very pleased by the announcement. Uh, I, I think the Zygons are probably the most successful one-off monster that we have from the classic series. And they're certainly remembered by fans in, in an extremely mm. affectionate way. But it's probably because Terror of the Zygons is such a good story. And again, it's not just because of the Zygons. It is genuinely a good story. Brigadier up in Scotland, Tom Baker, fantastic. Uh, what what I'm wondering is if we're going to get another doppelganger story, and that could be slightly concerning. I've always been a little bit, you know, concerned about the way doppelgangers are used so immediately uh, within Doctor Who. I mean, we had it in the Rebel Flesh, we had it certainly with the Doctor and the Tessa Lecter in a couple of stories over the last year and a half, and you know, even in the Bells of St John, we had two Doctors. We had a, a Spoonhead Doctor as well, and of course. Mm. Zygons operate by duplicating humans, so are we going to get yet another doppelganger story here? I think it's almost a certainty if they are coming back. We must have seen it coming. Surely we must have seen it coming. With Terror of the Zygons to be released this year on DVD and Blu-ray and God knows what, it had to be an obvious choice that we're going to see Zygons in the new series somehow this year. And and I, for one, am absolutely thrilled. Yeah, and I really hope they have a very, very prominent major role that they're just not going to be like a, I don't know, one-off reference or used in the background. I really hope they feature prominently in the 50th anniversary. I'll I'll be stunned if they didn't. I'll be stunned if they didn't. You don't make that huge announcement and create a fantastic costume just to have Mm. them walk around, you know, (laughs) no more than one inch on the screen. But uh, I'm looking forward to it too. I tell you, what excites me more than uh, Zygons on the 23rd of November is Ice Warriors on the 13th of April. Uh I tell you, Cold War coming up very soon in a week's time. That that, uh, that next time trailer looks absolutely fantastic. And just that one brief show of the claw reaching for the button at the end of that trailer. Oh, incredible. (laughs) You know, the 13th of April is my anniversary. Which anniversary? My wedding anniversary. Oh, it could be any. It could be like your anniversary on the podcast for all I know. It's not. It's, It's my wedding anniversary. It's also, coincidentally, my wife's anniversary. So... <laughs> We've got our well, Happy anniversary to you both, and I hope you enjoy watching uh, Cold War on BBC. <laughs> I very much look forward to seeing that one. It is, you know, it, it's a very anticipated episode, and uh, yes, we're going to have David Warner and Ice Warriors on a submarine oh. in the 1980s. Fantastic! I, I, I love the concept of this one, and uh, I will be hugely disappointed if it doesn't turn out to be as good as everybody is believing it's going to be. So please tune in next week for our review of uh, Hunt for Red October. I mean, uh, Cold War, uh, the, the, the next Doctor episode on your screens on BBC and ABC TV and be 12 hours later. They are fantastic. Once again, we'd like to remind you to, to send in your feedback about the rings of Akatan. Um, I really enjoy saying Akatan. Now I can say it, you know. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's one of those <laughs> words you just want to keep on saying again and again. Akatan, Akatan. Anyway, um, please feel free to send in your audio feedback. MP3 format is best, but any audio medium is absolutely fine. If you can send it to feedback at the Doctor Who podcast.com and there'll be a prize for the person who uses the word Akatan the most in their two minutes, please. <laughs> two minutes of feedback. <laughs> and that is a guarantee. I have something in the uh, DWP prize cupboard Ooh. that will go to the person that can mention Akatan the most in their feedback. So it has bring to be, it on. It has to be an innovative way of using the word. You can't just record yourself saying Akatan for two minutes. Uh, well, maybe. I, I wouldn't rule that out, James. Okay, okay. 
Okay, onwards and upwards. We'll be back in a week's time. We are edging closer and closer to episode 200 of the Doctor Who podcast. And my goodness, what a treat we have got in store for you for that episode. And I'm not going to say any more. So we'll be Akatan talking to you next week. Akatan. 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 Bye for now. Bye now, Akatan. (laughs) Akatan. 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 That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.